Ah, well, welcome. And uh, I, I want to welcome as well, if you're watching this online anytime, we're, we're glad to have you connect with us here at X Church and, or at a correctional facility. And, and I want to say welcome if you're new. Maybe uh, you came uh, last week at our event that we had for Fourth of July. We've, I've met a lot of new people, and you thought you'd come back on a regular weekend. I'm so glad you're here. We've actually been talking about the church through the summer. Uh, we've been talking through the story of the first church that you can read about in the book of Acts in the Bible. And I want you to understand this, that when we read about the first church, you need to understand that we're a part of that same church. I know there's a little bit of distance and there's some time, but, but that's what it means to be part of the church. We're not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a specific location. I'm not even talking about just X church. I'm talking about the global church of Jesus Christ. And we're a part of it. And so we've been kind of like walking through the challenges the, the early church went through because I believe that what God spoke to them in the beginning still applies to us today because we're the same church. And um, today's gonna be no exception. I, I'm so excited to talk about today's message because what I see is that though we are removed by 2,000 years, though we're removed by context, here's what I find very interesting. So many of the same challenges and problems that the early church dealt with, we're still dealing with. Why is that? Because humanity. Same problems keep coming back around. And when I think about what it was like to be church then and what it's like to be church now, there's a lot more similarities than we might even imagine. In fact, um, one of the things that I think characterized not just the time they lived in, but the time we live in, is, is something that I've noticed really was amplified over this last year. When I think about over the past year, year and a half, and all the things from the pandemic and, and just everything that kind of transpired with this last year, I, I, I think about the, the one symbol that really represents in my mind what this last year and a half looked like. And when I think about that symbol, I think about the division symbol, the division symbol. You know what? Yeah, I, some of you freaked out right now because you're like, we're not doing math, are we? I've been out of school for a long time, Pastor. Don't make me do math, especially division, long division. You remember long division? It was awful, okay? We're not going to do long division. But when you see the division symbol, I know you think math, but, but what do we really see? We see a barrier, a, a line, a, a dividing line or wall with two parts on either side. Division, right? That's what it means. Cut in half, division. When, when I think about what our culture is like today, I can't help but think that we feel more divided now, can I say this, than any other time in my life. I can only say that in my life, okay? Like, I, I don't know of another time in our culture where we are more at each other's throats, where we're more polarized than ever before, politically, socially, economically, racially, spiritually, morally. I could go on and on, but I think you guys all know. It feels like that we are more divided now in our culture than ever before. That's just, maybe it's just the way I see it, but that's what it feels like. And here's why. Because today, one of the things I notice, this is what we do. In fact, we kind of find our identity like this, is that we tend to focus on what makes us different rather than what unites us. Have you noticed that? That's what we do. We focus and we create these barriers on why we're different. It's us versus them. It's never we. 
Think, think about this. Okay, this is how it looks. So if I'm a conser- conservative, then if you're a liberal, you're my enemy. That's what we've heard for the last year and a half. Right? If I'm from a free state and you're from a communist state, you're my enemy. If I'm poor and you're rich, you're my enemy. If I'm an atheist and you're a person of faith, you're my enemy. And so we see that we're living in a culture that is incredibly divided. Hate is being spewed nonstop. Okay, anger and violence. I mean, this is a culture we live in today. Now, the sad part is that division exists within the church just as much. I know, I know we don't, we don't want to like think that, but it's true. Division has existed within the church as long as the church has been around. There, there have been so many things. What do we do? We, we may divide over different things, right? We divide over preference. We divide, divide over a style. We divide over theology. We divide over methodology. We, we divide, okay, if your theology and my theology are different, then we can't be brothers. Oh, if your skin color is different than mine, then we can't worship together. Oh, we divide over all these different things and we create denominations and we create all these different groups. And, and guess what? The world is looking at us going, they can't get it together. Why in the world would we be interested? Because we're so divided too. Can I, can I just say that when Jesus decided he was going to start a movement called the church, this was never his desire. You know that, right? His desire was that I'm going to bring together a group of people that is going to become a revolution, and I want them to be different than the rest of the world. I want them to go throughout the world, and they're going to live different, and they're going to look different, and they're going to love different, and it's going to be different. And because they're different, the whole world's going to say, I want to know your God. That's what Jesus wanted to start in the church. But that's not what happened. What happened was there was a group of Jews that were following Jesus, that he gave the message to go and take it to, remember we, if you were here week one, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, not the dreaded Samaritans, yeah, and to the ends of the earth. And yet, this was difficult for the Jewish people. Now, today, I, I want to look at a passage as we continue on our story. And so if you've got your Bible or electronic device, please get it out. I, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. I'll give you a second to find it before we jump into our story. And I don't want to sound, you know, because preachers are always kind of sound too hyperbolic about everything. But I, I want to say this. I'm not sure there is a more significant moment in the history of the church, besides its birth, its launch, than what you find in the story of Acts chapter 10. That's how important I believe this is, okay? In Acts chapter 10, there's this moment that is so significant, and it all seems to center around food. So if you like food, you might like this one. You may not, though. Wait till we get done, okay? It all centers around food. Now, let me introduce you to a character that we we meet for the first time in Acts chapter 10, at the very beginning, his name is Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was not a Jew. Cornelius was a Roman citizen. In fact, he was in the military. Uh, Cornelius would have been a uh, commander or a, he was a centurion, so that means he was an officer 
in the army of Rome, the empire that ruled basically the known world at this time, okay? But here's what we learn about him is that he was actually a God-fearing man. The, though he lived in a culture that was very polytheistic and really they just worshiped Caesar, not this guy. Cornelius actually believed in and worshiped the God that the Jews all believed in and worshiped, even though he wasn't Jewish. And one of the things that we learn about him, that's, that's, we learn that he didn't just have a belief in his mind, but he had a faith that he lived out. How do we know that? He prayed all the time and he gave to help the poor. Okay, so this was not just, oh, I believe. No, this was something he lived out. Now, something unique happened to him in Acts chapter 10. We're gonna start at verse three. Are you there? Acts 10, verse three. It says, one day, about three in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. And he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. That's how he would have asked it. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon, the tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now a couple quick things before we move on. We're going to get into another dream. But I love the detail and I love how God is beginning to orchestrate something. Here's what Cornelius has a vision or a dream. But it happens at three o'clock in the afternoon. Why is this important? Because if it were at three o'clock in the morning, he might wake up and go, did I just dream that? That was weird. Have you ever had a dream in the middle of the night? You're like, I don't know what that means. Okay. But no, no, no. This happens in the middle of the day. This is how you know this is God. Okay. Happens in the middle of the day. And I love what the angel said to him. He said that your, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. You know why I love that so much is because sometimes as a follower of Jesus, I will pray and I will try my best to serve him and do things. And sometimes I wonder if my prayers are just little thought bubbles that dissipate in the air, but never actually reach the ear of God. But I'm so grateful to know that every time I serve and I love others and I pray and I talk to God, that God hears me all the way in heaven, amen? And so I'm grateful to know that. And so it reaches God. And God gives them some instructions. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send some men to Joppa. I want you to look for a guy named Simon. But they also call him Peter. You need to know that because Simon is staying at Simon's house. Not Simon Peter, but he's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Now some of you are going, who's Simon the Tanner? Was he somebody that just worked on his golden tan all the time? He's a professional, like look at me. No, he was somebody that took animals and he died and he, he died their, uh, dried out and dyed their skins and then he would sell them for business. Okay, so... So God gives them very detailed instructions because what you're about to see is this whole thing is not a coincidence. It's not. Okay, now it says this in verse nine. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. 
do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. Now, another dream. It's two different guys, different backgrounds, two different dreams, okay, two different visions. And again, I'm so grateful that all the details are included. Uh, Peter, it's noon, it's lunchtime, he's hungry, they're preparing food, so he goes up on the roof to pray. Now some of you go, why would you go on the roof to pray? Because you're thinking about your roof, and you're like, if I'd stood on my roof, I'd fall off. Well, because their roofs were different, okay? They were flat, they were kind of like had rooms, and so Peter goes up to the roof to pray. I love this, it's noon. He has a vision from God. This is not in the middle of the night. Again, why is it daytime? Because this is so significant. God wants to make sure there's no mistakes. He has this vision of a sheet coming down out of heaven, something like a sheet, with all these different animals that he sees in it. He's looking at all these different animals and he hears a voice with the sheet. And the voice says, Peter, get up, kill, eat. Now, when you're hungry, that's, that sounds like good news, right? But here's Peter, he's starving, he's hungry. He sees all these animals, his mouth is starting to water. And as he's looking at all the animals in this sheet being let down, he sees, oh wait, oh, oh, that's a, that's a pig. Bacon, ham, no, I don't eat that. And he looks over, there's an iguana. Mm, I don't have a taste for iguana, you know. He sees a hawk sitting on the, the edge of it. And he was like, oh no, we don't, no, they're protected. We don't eat them, you know. And, and, and so Peter is beginning to have this argument in this vision with the voice that comes from heaven. Surely not, Lord. I would never, I've never let anything like that touch my lips. Now, why, why would Peter say that? It's because according to his law, certain foods were off the menu, okay? And, and then, so this voice says, no, 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 no. Peter, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. Get up, kill, and eat. And this happens three times. Now, why do you think it happened three times? Because God wanted to really make sure he knew. Like whenever God repeats himself over and over, it's because God's really serious. This is a big deal, okay? Happened three times and it disappears. Peter is like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just hungry, my stomach. I don't know. I'm starving, but there's no, and he's bought, and he's trying to figure all this out. Now, I wanna hit pause. We're gonna come back to this story, but we need to take a little bit of a detour because here's why. You will miss the significance of Acts chapter 10, if you do not understand why Peter thinks this way, okay? We, we need to kind of back up and, and maybe let's talk about food for a little bit. I like food. You want to talk about food? I think that food has been and will always be incredibly significant to us. Amen? I love food. Anybody here love food? Hello? I love me some food. Some of you can't wait till I get done. Hurry it up because I'm going to go get some food, preacher. I know, I know what it's like being in church. You're just waiting for some food, right? We, food is more to us. I want to say this at least if I can. I'm going to look in the camera as Americans. I'm gonna, I don't want to say this about everybody in the world. But to us, it's more than just something to eat to survive for most of us, right? Food is emotional. Food is powerful. Food is, food is significant. Like I, I, that's like, I don't just go eat like I eat eat. It's a moment. It's a thing. I care about where we're going to eat. Like food is, and it's also part of the most significant moments of your life. I want you to think about this, right? The first time you, you meet someone, you like them, and you ask them to go out on a date, what do you do? 
You always have your first day around food. There's a dinner, there's a lunch, there's at least a dessert. There's always something around food, which doesn't make sense to me because until you're comfortable enough knowing them, why would you want to sit across from them and then you have to think about what you're going to order because you can't order anything too messy, nothing would get your fingers mad. Why would you do that, right? But that's what we do. Why? Because food is significant. It's so significant that when two people get married and they say, I do, what do they do right after that? We have a party and we have food, right? Again, not to be morbid, but, but let's be honest, when someone dies in the family, we still get together and have food. I don't know why, but food is central to everything in our lives and it matters to us. Can I tell you something? Maybe you never thought about food matters to God too. I bet you never thought about that. God cares about food. Food matters to God just as much. If you don't believe me, can I, can I just tell you what Jesus said that we have to look forward to if we are followers of Jesus when we are united with him for eternity in heaven? You know how Jesus described it? He said, we're gonna have a huge banquet, a big feast. We're gonna have a party and we're gonna eat together. God likes food. I love knowing that God likes food. Food is actually really significant to the story of God and mankind. Let me show you this, because maybe you never thought about it this way. Okay? Food in the Garden of Eden. When God made this garden and he put the first man and the first woman in this garden that we call Adam and Eve, he, he said, you can enjoy all of the fruit that I have made for you. You can enjoy it all except for the fruit from the one tree. Now, what did God do? He took food... And he used it as a litmus test, okay? It wasn't about the fruit. It was about our freedom to say, you have a choice. Follow me or disobey. That, that's what God did with food. He used food as the litmus test, okay? Food was connected to so many significant moments throughout the Bible. In fact, whenever you would strike a covenant, which is an agreement or a contract or a deal with somebody, okay? Whenever you did that, it always usually was consummated. It was always kind of confirmed with food. That's what they did. In other words, let, let me give it to you this way. If you make a deal, you share a meal, okay? It's real simple. We made a deal, let's share a meal. Now, God's the first one that started this, okay? So here, here I need you to know this. God actually chose a man named Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him. We call him Father Abraham. And, and God, God called Abraham and he said, I want to use you, Abraham, to, to do something good for you and through you. And I'm going to bless the whole world through one of your descendants. Now, Abraham didn't have any children at this time, so it was going to be a miracle. And, and so God said, Abraham, if you'll move to a land, I'm going to give you and your descendants, then I'm going to do something miraculous. Now, what he was really talking about was I'm going to use through your family line to bring Jesus. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. So he said, all right, I'll make you a deal. You pack up and move and follow me, and uh, I'll bless you. And Abraham's like, all right, I'm in. So here's what God did to kind of solidify the covenant. God said, let's share a meal. You can read about it. God told uh, Abraham, I want you to go get me some animals for our meal. I want you to get a uh, cow. I like ground beef and steaks, and, you know, God likes steaks. I didn't, you know, get a cow. I want you to get a, I want you to get a ram. Okay, I want you to get a goat, I think it was. He said, I want you to get a pigeon and a dove. God was really hungry. He said, go get, and you think, well, cow would be enough, right? But go get all these animals, 
Here's what, here's what he told Abraham. Cut them down the middle and lay the two sides down on the ground. I want you to cut. We're going to have a meal. We're going to split it. Okay? Split the animals down the middle and lay them on the side. Now, in my family and growing up, we always had a rule. When you're going to share a cookie, when you're going to share anything, one person gets to cut it, divide it. The other person gets to choose which side they want. You know that, right? If you don't know that, write that down. Some of you don't take notes. You're like, okay, oh, I didn't know that, moms and dads. So one person cuts and the other person gets to choose. So Abraham, you cut the animals in half. God says, I get to choose which side. Now, you got to understand, whenever God shared a meal, he didn't actually like eat it in front of them. Okay, it was symbolic. And so what God did was he came to Abraham in a vision and he saw this boiling, burning pot that came and God passed right through the middle of the two halves. Strange, I know, weird, but this was God's way of kind of like confirming his covenant with Abraham. We made a deal. We make a deal, we share a meal. Now you see this play out even in his descendants, a guy named Jacob, who's his grandson that God would later change his name to Israel, right? Okay, there's a time when him and his uncle Laban actually make a deal to be civil with each other. And it says they confirm their covenant with a meal. You make a deal, you share a meal. This is what they did. Now, fast forward 500 years. What started with one man and one family quickly grew to be a nation. Okay, so grew to be a nation somewhere between one and two million people. That's what's estimated. And I know a lot of you probably know a little bit of this story, but it comes from like the the Israelites, that was the name of their descendants, that were in Egypt, okay, living in slavery. They were living in slavery. They'd been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So God sent a deliverer named Moses. I know many of you know the story, just follow me. He sent a deliverer named Moses to lead them out of Egypt, where? To go back to the land that God had promised to Abraham on covenant. We're going to go back there. Oh, by the way, how did God describe it? A land flowing of milk and honey. God likes food. Okay, I'm just telling you. I'm just trying to show you this. God's into food, all right? A land flowing of milk and honey. We're going to take them to this place. Now, what God does is he brings them out of Egypt. But here's the thing. 400 years, generations go by, and they don't really know the one true God personally, not like Abraham did. Right, Because they grew up in a polytheistic, pagan culture, ungodly culture that worshipped all kinds of things. They had no clue what they had to do. So here's what God did. Many of you know this. Is that God gave Moses something to give the people. It was called the law. It was a, a list of rules. Right, and we, we maybe don't know all of them, but a lot of us probably know some of them that begin with the Ten Commandments. We know some of them, right? And he gave them this law. Now, why did God do this? We're, we're, I'm going to talk about that for just a second. For, here's what he was doing. He was bringing them out of Egypt and out of this ungodly culture. And he was trying to use them as a nation to ultimately bring his son Jesus into the world. Okay, So he says, I'm calling you out of the rest of the world to be a people dedicated only to me. And he made a new covenant with them, the whole group of them. Okay, That's what he did. Now, why, why was God doing this? And what did he do with the law? Now, here's what God was doing, okay? Is that God was taking the people out of a situation where they did not know him. And he said, I need to reframe for you what it looks like to follow me. You, you don't know what it looks like to follow me. And so 
He would say over and over again, throughout the, if you read the first five books of the Bible, that's what was considered the law, he would say over and over this phrase. He says, I am calling you to be holy, for I am holy. Now, that's what I ask you a question before I move on. I just want you to think about it. What comes to your mind when I say holy? See, most of us, when we hear the word holy, you know what we think of? In fact, we shudder a little bit. We, we think about perfect. We think about righteous, clean, spotless, you know, no error, no fault. This is God. God's holy. He's perfect. Do you know what the word holy means? It means to separate or set apart. Now, that does define God. He is set apart from us to set apart. What was God saying? He was saying, I'm pulling you out and I'm going to set you apart as a unique nation. So when the whole world sees you, they actually say your life and your God must be different. That's what holiness. That's what I'm pulling you out. So he gave them a law. And so they would understand what it looked like to follow him. He used object lessons, real life, practical things. Now, some of the things that are in the law do not make any sense to us, especially removed 2,000 years. Let me just say that. Some of them made sense to them. Some of them might not have even made sense to them at the time. Some of them are ceremonial. Some of them are practical. I would argue some of them might just be arbitrary because God's like, I want that. I just want that. Let me give you some examples. Um, mold. Did you know God talked about mold? God, God, God talked about mold. Now, this is practical and it makes sense, right? God said when something like an article of clothing gets mold on it, right, that it becomes unclean. So God was using mold to define the term unclean is what he's doing. He says it's, it's got a disease, it's got something on it, bacteria growing on it. And he said separate it from the material that is not moldy. Now, we all probably know why you would do that. Because if you take something that is moldy, if you ever had mold in your house, right, and you had mold in one area, and you did not cut it out, what would it do? It would always spread to the rest. So God would say, you need to take that which is unclean out so that it does not ruin the rest. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And they had all these procedures they had to go through to try to clean it to see if it would be good. That, would, that makes sense. That would protect them, right? There was other things, skin disorders, rashes, diseases. If somebody had something, I mean, this sounds awful, but God was like, we, we're going to separate them. They're unclean. Why? Because if they're around people that are clean, that disease could transfer to the clean people, and it would cause them to have disease. You understand what I'm saying? It makes total sense. Now, here's what's interesting. And you, you never really understand the nuance of this until you understand Jesus. But things that are clean, back then, mold, you know, all these different things, diseases. Things that are clean never made unclean things clean. But unclean things always made clean things unclean. Is that perfectly clear? So confused. I know. I get it. He, he, he would do this. He talked about, he talked about body fluids. We're going to skip right over that. It's weird. And and um, so some of the stuff is like you got to understand it was like ceremonial. So if this happened, then you need to take a bath before you're, you're considered ceremonial clean. One of the items that God talked about in the law was food, particular animals. And God actually gave them a menu. He said, here's what you can eat that I deem are clean. 
And here's what you can't eat because I deem them unclean. Now, I, this is what's, what's interesting is for centuries, theologians and people have debated why certain animals, why God said this animal that chews its cud, cud and has a split hoof is, and this one, what, people have debated this for years. I, I'm not sure I buy any of them. Some people say that they think it's because, you know, these were unclean animals and they were gross and they could get bacteria from them. That's interesting because, because then he tells Peter to go ahead and eat them. So if it was for medical reasons, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. And oh, by the way, we still eat bacon today. Hello? Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Okay. God, God said some of these are clean and some of these are unclean. It could be that God was trying to, what was he doing? I need to show them that I want you to be different. I just want you to live different than the rest of the world. All these other cultures, how do I make them different? Okay, well, here's what we're gonna do. I don't want you to eat these things. Well, well you, why? Doesn't matter. They're unclean. They'll make you unclean. Don't eat these things. I just want you to be different. So sometimes when you look at the rules, let's be honest, it's kind of like a head scratcher and you're going, why God? Why did you even need to do this in the first place? That's a great question. Why did God give them the law? I will tell you just three quick reasons that I think that God did it in that moment. First, they had lived 400 years, literally as the lowest people in a class system where they didn't have to run a society, a culture, anything. And so now they needed to kind of define their own people group, their own culture. And so I believe that God gave them the law, the rules, so they could learn how to operate in society. If you do not have rules in society, you can have chaos and anarchy, and we do not allow that because people get hurt, because people are bad, because that's our default. That's what we do. So God says, I'm going to do not kill. Mm -mm, don't do that. And he gives them the law. Another reason why I believe that God gave them the law was because he wanted them to see what the standard looks like for following him. God says, if you want to follow me, here's the standard. And oh, by the way, if you don't live up to that standard, do you know what we call that today? We call that sin. That's all it means. You did if you're going to be perfect, you're going to have to follow all of these. This is the standard. I'll give you a little clue. When God gave the law to them, he knew they could not keep it. He knew it. I want you to understand this. God was not surprised when people kept breaking his rules. He was like, oh, well, that didn't work. We better do something else. Plan B. No. God knew. What was he doing? Because here's what the Bible tells us, that if we do not have the law, if we do not have a standard, then we do not know what it means to violate that standard. And so God would say, do not lie. Well, everybody lies. No, not my people. Do not lie. Do not steal. Well, back then in the cultures, might makes right. I've just come take whatever I want. What are you going to do about it? God says, no, 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 we don't act that way. Nope, do not steal, do not cheat, do not covet, do not. And there's all these different, what was God doing? He said, here's the standard, here's the standard. Now, here's the third thing, is I believe that God knew this when he gave it. This was intended to be a placeholder to deal with the problem of sin, but it was to point to the final solution. Because they were gonna see, this is impossible. This is impossible. You know what that final solution was, by the way? Jesus, it was Jesus. It would never work God knew it. Some people are like, why did God put it in there? It was a placeholder. It was a placeholder. He's preparing to do something, okay? So this is why he gave it. 
Now, here's, here's what they did with it. This is what all religious people tend to do with rules, is they became obsessed with the rules. See, they came from these polytheistic pagan cultures that had multiple gods, and here's what they believed. They believed that if you wanted to please the gods so they didn't smite you, you had to obey all of their rituals and rules so that the gods would be happy with you. That was their mindset. So guess what they did with the law? Oh, this is how we make God happy with us. God will be pleased with me if I follow all the rules. Can I tell you something? God knew they could never do it when he gave it. Do you really think that God determined that whether or not they could please him was on how many rules that they followed? He knew they couldn't. That's why he gave them a whole system to deal with it when they didn't. They had a priest. You had to sacrifice animals. It cost you something. The whole thing God put in place, he knew it was just a placeholder. But here's what they did. They went, rules. Religious people like rules. I don't know why, but religious people, I do know why. It's because I want God to like me. Because I want God to be pleased with me. Because I want God to be happy with me. Because I have a conscience. Because, and so here, here's what they did. They just focused on the rules. And when people broke the rules, here's what the religious leaders did. They go, oh, you broke, oh, they keep breaking this rule all the time. I know what we'll do. We should make more rules. God gave us some. You know what's better than some? More. We should make more rules. And with these rules, we'll keep people from breaking the real rules by creating more rules. Some of you, I just described your experience in church growing up. Rules on rules on rules. We call it legalism. Where you create rules to keep you away from breaking the rules. Can I tell you what happens when you create what I call layers of rules? You know what I mean? It's like I got to create. So, so this, is, this is, you know, bad. This is really bad. If we just create a rule to stop people here, they won't go here. So we're going to create layers of rules. Can I tell you what happens with layers of rules? Listen, layers of rules always lead to levels of righteousness. Some of you should write that down. It's so profound. Layers of rules always lead to levels of righteousness. Let, let, me, do, let me describe this for you because I, I grew up in an environment where we had rules to keep us from breaking the rules. I bet some of you did. You know what I'm talking about if you were around church. Okay, we, we, I grew up in a Christian home. I love it. I grew up in a Christian school. I want to tell you about my prom. Oh, wait a minute. We didn't have a prom. You know why we didn't have a prom at that school? Because there's dancing at the prom. That's what you do at a prom. And if you were to dance, and it would be awful because you might dance with a girl. That's, I know. And, and if you danced with a girl, you would get close, so close that you wouldn't leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and we all know what happens when you dance with a girl. Because if you dance with a girl, that just automatically leads to doing other things with a girl that you're not supposed to do with that girl unless you married that girl. So let's just not have a prom. Do you, do you understand what I'm talking about? Layers on layers of rules. I don't know what it looked like in your environment, but maybe it looked like something like, hey, somebody got drunk. 
They did something so stupid, so bad. They did all these other things. You know what? That's it. No wine. Off limits, because you will break rules. Some of you know what I'm talking about. This is it. Like, oh, oh, no, you don't wear shorts. You don't wear shorts. You got to cover the knees up, because knobby knees are sexy. And we can't be showing them knees. And makeup, makeup's evil. You know I'm kind of women that wear makeup. I'm so grateful we've been liberated from that. Ladies, any of you, or do you wish you could go, you know. Layers of rules, here's what happens. Layers of rules leads to levels of righteousness. Oh, I don't go eat at those places because, you know, they serve that. Oh, I'm, I'm better than her because look what she wears. Oh, I, I'm, I'm at least, I'm righteous in myself because I don't act like that. I don't go to those kind of movies. Mm-mm, mm-mm. We, we draw the line right where the motion picture drew the line for us. We draw the line right at PG, maybe PG. Th- we draw a line. What do, we, what do we do? Layers of rules lead to levels of righteousness. Why do we do that? Because when we don't measure up to God's standard, we look for somebody else to measure ourselves against. Oh, I don't measure up to God, but oh, I measure up to him. So I feel better about myself, right? You know what that's called? Self-righteousness. And it's rooted in pride. And I would argue, you could say, maybe Jesus said blasphemy, obviously worse, but I'd say next to that, I don't know there's a worse sin. I, I think we would maybe be surprised one day we would ask God, how would you rank sins? I, God would never, actually the Bible talks about there's different levels of sins and punishments with them. But I would imagine that self-righteousness, the stench of it is more offensive to God than someone doesn't even go to the church, doesn't even know him in the way they may be living their life that you would look down upon. I really believe that. And oh, by the way, guess what self-righteousness does? It creates division. It creates division. I'm better than you. Thank God I'm not like you. This is what happened in the Jewish culture. There was division that was created because of this. Two types. There was an internal division, a division that was inside. And you see this in the religious elite that rise to the top that say, thank God I'm not like those sinners. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector. Oh, I at least do these. I give money to the poor. I do these things. And they live in their self-righteousness. And what it did, it created division within the Jewish culture. And listen, it also created division externally outside of the Jewish culture. Now, those of us, because God was bringing us out and we're to be different. And so they're enemies. That's why Jesus had to reframe everything, guys, when he showed up. Well, I go kill my enemy. No, 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 no. Love your enemy. But you're outside. I, what's interesting is that um, 
the Jews started to see everyone that wasn't Jewish from a very racially slanted position. Like if you were a Gentile, that word Gentile, by the way, is seen from the perspective of a Jew. It's anybody who's not one of us. That's a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're Italian, Greek, doesn't matter. You're Gentile, okay? Now, their, their perspective would be this. You did not go over to a Gentile's house because the moment you would go there, you would become unclean because of the meals they would eat. They serve bacon there. Ham on Easter. <laughs> we don't go in there. And so they would not even, go. in fact, according to Mishnah, I don't know if you ever heard of it, Mishnah was a collected uh, rabbinic teachings, okay, rabbis that they would try to, here's what rabbis did, their, their job, the religiously, they would interpret the law. However, and so the Mishnah was, was a, a collection uh, of, of interpretations of the law. And here's some of the things that the Mishnah would tell the Jews about how to think. They would say this, that if you invited a Samaritan, now who's a Samaritan? It's somebody that was partly Jewish and partly Gentile. They had mixed blood, okay? If you invited a Samaritan into your house for a meal, okay, it would be as if you heap burning coals on the heads of your family. That's how they, that's how they viewed it. We are clean. And we don't associate, this is how they viewed it. So what happened was walls of division, internally, externally, were created. Now let's go back to our story. Peter, get up, kill and eat. No, Lord, I would never... Don't call anything impure that I have made clean. At the same time, a day before, God tells Cornelius, a Gentile, send for Peter. Now, in this moment, Peter, he comes out of this vision at just the time when Cornelius' men show up at Simon's house. What are the odds? They're pretty good when God's orchestrating the whole thing. This, I just want you to say this is not a coincidence, all right? And the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter in that moment, and he says, I want you to go with them. I want you to go with them. Now, I want to read for you what happened after that. Acts 10, verse 23. It says, the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So Peter took some other Jews with him. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Verse 25. As Peter did what? Wow. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are all well aware. It is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, what we probably did not see is what it was like for Peter when he stops at the threshold of Cornelius' house. His whole life, he had been told, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Don't associate with them. They don't deserve it. They're less than. They're not chosen. 
They're not the holy ones. They're not the, the, this all he's been told us in the whole entire life. You go in there, you're unclean. You go in there, you're sinning. You go in there, God does. And so I can only picture in my mind that as Peter's walking and they invite him in, that Peter just stops at the threshold and there's something inside of him. was like, oh, do I go in there? And then he remembers, oh, the dream. Oh, I think in that moment, he realized it wasn't about the animals. Peter, I never cared about the menu. I didn't care about the menu then. I just, I I needed to show you that I wanted you to live differently than the rest of the world. I just, it wasn't about the menu. It's about people. And it's about, listen, when I told Abraham I'm going to use him, it wasn't because Abraham was great. It was because I needed someone. And, and you, you're the chosen nation by default because I picked Abraham. It was all intended for me to bring Jesus and not just for you guys to keep to yourselves, but so that Jesus and the message of Jesus would go to the entire world, Peter. And so Peter, he, he goes in and he shares with them the message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell on them the same way he fell on the early disciples in Acts 2. Whoa, I guess... God could God see fit to do that. And it says, in, in that moment, let me tell you what happened. A wall fell between the Jews and the Gentiles. This was so significant. I can't even express to you that today, majority of the people who claim Jesus as their Lord are not Jewish because of this moment. Many of you need to understand the gospel reached to you because of this moment. This is how significant this is. What does this mean for us though? What does it mean for us where maybe we didn't grow up in a Jewish tradition, maybe you're not Jewish and what does this mean for us? I think it means a lot for us today as well as the church. In fact, I wanna, I wanna close by reading this passage out of Ephesians chapter two because I, I, I think in our culture, we're constantly hearing about what divides us. I wonder if what the world needs to see and hear from the church is what unites us. Ephesians 2, verse 14 and 16, it says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. That's the old covenant. That's the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled that. Now we're under grace. Now it looks different, okay? He made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself how many new people? One. One new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And I want you to see this. So how does this change for you and me? And our hostility toward each other was put to what? What was it put to? It was put to, it was put to death. What, what I believe that we need to understand is this. God has removed barriers, broken through barriers that religion wants to put up. Barriers within the church and barriers outside the church. 
And today, listen, here's what I've seen. We can be so easily divided over a lot of things. We can. We can be divided politically and socially and morally and racially. There's so many things that in our world that we can be divided. But if there's anything we need to know as the church of Jesus Christ, it is this, that when Jesus went to the cross, it's so that he could show us, listen, that the cross wasn't a division symbol. Come on. The cross wasn't a division symbol. But what was the cross? The cross is a plus symbol. The cross was never about dividing. It was about adding. The cross was never about separating. It was about uniting. And the message of the church should be uniting, not dividing. The people of the church should be uniting, not dividing. Can I just tell you something? I believe God loves diversity. I believe God loves diversity in every way. Diversity of thought, diversity of skin color, diversity of nationality. Listen, when we get to heaven, if you want a world that looks like you, you are gonna be royally disappointed because when we get to heaven, heaven is gonna be filled with people that look nothing like us. They might be Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, Latino. It does not matter because the cross tore down the wall, the dividing wall, and so there is one now. And listen, if the world needs to see something in the church, it's not our rules. Please hear me. The church was called to be different, holy, righteous, pure. No, that's... See, God knows we'll never be righteous or pure or perfect without Jesus. God knew it. He knew it when he gave him the law. And listen, he knew it when Jesus died on the cross for you and me. No, what if, what if the call to be holy is not something that leads us to self-righteousness and I'm better than you are and I think different and you're my enemy, you're on the other side. But what if the call to be holy is to live different? So that when the world is slinging mud at each other, the church says, we'll clean it up. When the world is throwing hate at each other, the church says, I'm going to respond in love. When the world is divided over race and politics, then the church says, you know what unites us? Jesus. You know what I want? I want a church that is so diverse, not just in skin color. I want that too. I want a church that is diverse politically, a church that's diverse economically. I don't want a church where everybody looks like me and thinks like me. I want a church where we show the world what it looks like when people who are different can come together and find common ground and live in unity. And when the world sees that, Come on, stand to your feet. I'm done, I'm done. When the world sees that, guess what's gonna happen? They're gonna say, we wanna know your God. Today, I, I hope I reframe for you what holiness is. Set apart, I would try to be perfect. I can't be perfect. Doesn't mean I'm not gonna try to follow Jesus. But it means I'm gonna live different than the rest of the world. I'm not going to get into all the hatred and dividing things and social media wars. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I, I just want to show people Jesus and his love. What about the truth? Last I knew, the truth was not named Tim. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'll point people to Jesus, and I'll let Jesus and his word highlight that. So today, I, I know this message might step on your toes a little bit. It might free some of you. I don't know how you grew up. It's not a license to sin. That's what everybody's afraid of. Pastor, if you tell everybody we're free, they're gonna go out and do that. Hey, listen, not if they know Jesus, not if they're following Jesus. I'll just trust the Holy Spirit to lead them, okay? Can we do that? Can we stop trying to add rules and layers of rules because that's gonna create levels of righteousness? No, no, no. But what I hope and pray is that we would look holy, not perfect, but we would look different. That our neighbors, coworkers, and people that you get to live your life in front of, they would say, what? What's so different about you? Oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. I just would love to introduce you to Jesus. When people show up at our church, I wanted to go, there's something different about this place. That's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the answer. He's always been the answer. Amen? Come on, can I pray for us today? Father, I'm so thankful that you gave us Jesus. That God, there's no list of rules that we could ever keep. God, I'm, I'm a messed up sinner just like all of us. I'm so grateful for your grace. Listen, if maybe you, you steered away from religion or faith or even the church because you felt like it was a bunch of rules that you couldn't measure up to, listen, it's not and you can't. The message you need to know is about Jesus. He died to take your place and my place. He was the only perfect sacrificial lamb. He's the only one who did not deserve death, but actually went to death for you and me on the cross. And he did that to reunite you to your father in heaven. Today, maybe there's someone here, there's somebody watching this. There's been a lot of things that have kept you away from God, but maybe right now for the first time ever, you're realizing those things weren't him. You're being drawn by his spirit to respond to Jesus in this moment, to invite him to be the Lord of your life. If that's you, I want to invite you in this moment just to pray a prayer, a profession of your faith. And when you do that, I want you to know that his spirit's going to meet you just like he did Cornelius and fill your life and begin to change you to make you more like him. And he's going to do that. You don't have to clean yourself up because we can't. You just come to him as you are. And if that's you today, would you just say this prayer with me, if that's your prayer? Father, today I come to you, a sinner, messed up. I can't keep it all. I can't get it right. Today I acknowledge that I need Jesus and that he died for me. It was his cross and his death that brought me back into relationship with you. And today I receive him as my Lord and Savior. And I want to commit to follow him. I want, to, I want to do my best to follow him, not in a legalistic way, but because I'm responding to this moment of grace. So today I, I commit my life to you, Jesus. Listen, as we're still praying, I just feel a sense that I want to pray over our church for a work of unity, not just in our church, but also through our church. I want to invite you just to pray with me right where you are. Maybe you feel comfortable, lift your hands up to God and just join with me into this prayer. Father, I pray right now for 
God, the unity within the church and outside the church. God, I pray that, Lord, as, as a people, that we would be committed, Lord, committed to you and following you and living the way you want us to live, not for legalistic reasons, but God, so that we can be a demonstration to the world that you are there and that you sent Jesus to be the ultimate payment for our sin. And so God, today we thank you for the cross. We thank you, God, that you bring different groups of people together. You bring different colors of people together. You bring different nationalities together. You bring different thought together, different political sides together. God, because of the cross, and I pray unity in our hearts. I pray unity in the church. God, we align ourselves as a church under the power of your name, Jesus. It is at that name, God, that we want want to be the demonstration to the world. We want people, God, to see you, Jesus, when they look at the church. Come on, we just begin to worship him today.